thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Citizen Civs, Captains, and Commanders, you've tuned to the guard frequency, and as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 186 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and it was recorded on Friday, September 22nd, and made available for download Tuesday, September 26th, over at guardfrequency.com. I'm Jeff. I'm Genjato. And I'm Ostron. And in the audio booth this week is Henry. So, what do we have in store this week, Ostron? In this week's Squawk Box, Yar, matey, we take to the high seas on Mars. Next, we see what news from your favorite space sims has landed as we cover finding out why ATV really stands for air traffic violations in Star Citizen, there are more ancient ships and brand new weapons in Elite Dangerous, and we take our first look at the new space sim on our radar, Helium Rain. Finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Good people of the verse, lend us your ears, or or rather your, your audio talents, actually. Uh, Guard Frequency is looking for additional audio engineers to join the crew. So if you've got a good ear for detail, know your fade ins from your high pass filter, and think you can lend us an hour each week, we'd love to hear from you. Doubly so if you're a keen fan of tabletop RPGs. If you're interested, drop us a tweet, a message on Facebook, or an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the squawk box. Any of you boys need a carrier out here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Cryptor, 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 this is Jeff saying welcome to the squawk box, everyone. The effort to send humans to Mars is continuing and another step has just been completed. Six people just finished an eight-month-long study backed by NASA using the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas for short. For the study, the team was secluded in a habitat on a plane just below the summit of Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano located in Hawaii. They were tasked with doing geological surveys and mapping studies. The focus of this effort was mostly to study the psychological effects of the isolation, so a simulation of a Martian environment was limited. However, they did impose 20-minute delays on communications, force the crew to work in pairs and wear spacesuits whenever leaving the habitat, and conduct maintenance on the habitat that would be necessary in a Martian environment. The diet was freeze-dried and canned food as well as whatever vegetables they were able to grow in the habitat itself. Full reports and analyses weren't available, but uh, the articles did share a few notes on obvious conclusions. Conflict obviously became the primary focus, and everyone agrees that people involved in such ventures need to have healthy conflict resolution habits. One of the crew suggested that emergencies actually help with that, since everyone was able to focus on something other than themselves or the rest of the crew. Another common theme was boredom. If crew members got too stressed out, one of the options for relaxation was a VR headset that would project tranquil scenes. Although the mission doctor reported that for a few months, she would have waking dreams of Earth locations. There were also games designed to help with boredom and provide insight on the emotional state of the crew. There is another similar mission planned for the future, so if you want to spend eight months in simulated Martian conditions, are a decent astronaut material and advanced science degree, head on over to the High Seas website, which will be linked in our show notes. This definitely isn't the this definitely isn't the the first type of study like this I've seen. I mean, there was a big Russian study, and they've had. Oh, you know, they made a movie other... of the of of this kind of stuff. They made a couple of movies of this. Biodome. So I've been to the I've been to the real biodome, and that is actually really cool. So if you ever get a chance to go out there, it's I think New Mexico or Colorado, anyway, wherever the hell it is, uh, it's really cool to to check out and uh, uh, see how that original biodome experiment was done. I was I just looked up his name. I didn't see anything before because I had to look it up. Robert Zubrin did this uh, experiment in the 2000s, I think. It was it was probably like 10, 15 years ago, where he isolated 
a handful of people and did the same thing. He was trying to make a case for Mars. Uh, that might have been the title of the show they made for it also. Yeah, most of these studies, I mean, there have been a bunch of different ones, but a lot of them seem to focus on different things. Uh, like, for example, there's that undersea lab that's designed more to test like equipment and functioning in zero gravity. Then there have been a couple of studies done in that um, I forget where it is. It's somewhere either in the Middle East or the South Asian area where, like, it's got a desert climate that is theoretically as close to Martian environment you can get to on Earth. Um, and then this one is focusing on the psychological aspects. So I suppose the theory is that everybody does all these studies, and then when they put it all together, they get a picture of what the total experience will be like when somebody is traveling to and or living on Mars. This this study had six people in it. I, I don't think yes. that's I don't think that's an unreasonable number of people. I think that some of these studies have, have fewer number of people and I think that would drive me a little more crazy. Like if you had four people or or, or four less, I think I would start getting a little uh, stir crazy just talking to the same four people over again. Six seems a little more sane. If they had eight, yeah. eight would even be better. It was funny. One of the articles, they interviewed uh, one of the scientists that came out and they were like, so are you going to keep in touch with these people? And her response was apparently like a diplomatic, well, I'll stay close to three of them. <laughs> so obviously at least two were not um, not best of friends. But you're right. The more people you can fit, the better your chances that you'll find at least somebody to work with. Right. I mean, imagine how much of a nightmare it would be if all four people on a mission hated each other. That would be pure torture. Yeah. And I found it interesting, Star Trek, in a way, again, predicted future technology. Because uh, who here watched Voyager? Oh, I'm big Voyager yeah. fan. Yeah, seen it. So you remember that two-parter episode where they ran into the Nova-class ship? Yes. Like the smaller ship? Yep. And the captain would, like, they were torturing... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The captain of that ship had a VR headset that just projected tranquil yes. virtual reality scenes to relax himself. So, And you'd think that theirs would be better than the Vive that we have. But that was, you, that was you pretty lame. Hope, but... That was pretty lame. Of course, I don't get what she's saying. She had waking dreams of Earth locations. That's weird. It's just weird. I don't know. That just sounds well, lots weird. Lots of people in lots of stressful situations can start having hallucinations. So uh, I, just the same way where if you're in an, an environment where you're doing something repetitive, you can start dreaming about that. You know, you play too much Tetris, right? And if you play too much Tetris, you start seeing everything as blocks and you'll, you'll, you'll dream that silly Russian play on their anthem that, that they has as the music and things like that. Uh, you know, in, in a stressful environment, your your mind is constantly on the stress of itself and reinforces those behaviors. So you, it starts leaking into other things, right? And uh, it's all kind of the same, all interrelated as far as I, I can I understand. So your point is that scientists on Mars may dream they're in Tetris? It's possible. Read, seen, or heard something that you might think might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. 3175 Port Bay, hands on approach, checker screen, call the ball. Don't get technical with me. This week's burndown report from Star Citizen indicated that 19 bugs had been eliminated, bringing the remaining blockers down to 7. Although at the time of this recording, further information has come out suggesting it's down to 5. For the rest of ATV, Star Citizen covered the air traffic control system they've implemented. Because they're trying to realistically model aspects of the universe, they can't just have everyone fly into the same docking port, black out the screen, and then light it up for you with you outside your ship in the hangar. They apparently studied real-life traffic controllers to get a sense of how the system should work. I guess that means an air traffic controller strike that has to be broken up by the government is now on the table as a possible gameplay. Unlike mini space games, where you usually get one to five different voices giving you permission to land, even though there are almost a thousand stations, Star Citizen is trying to create bespoke controllers for each major landing zone. 
They don't have that many yet, so it's not a daunting task to begin with. Bob Rizzolo, a dialogue supervisor with CIG, is particularly proud of Levski's flight controller, who has a laid-back, quote, California surfer attitude. In addition to customizing controllers for each landing zone, CIG is using the controllers to further their goal of creating realistic and dynamic NPCs that inhabit the verse. The controllers are supposed to have reactions for a variety of so-called non-standard player behaviors. The example they gave was someone trying to ram or strafe the station where the controller will issue a rebuke. Also, the controller can leave their post for a variety of reasons, usually due to attack. In that case, an automated voice will take over handling the landings. The solution is typical, but the point is that there will be an identifiable reason for the normal controller being absent. Because of the NPC fidelity ideal, the NPCs are present in the game world, meaning players could theoretically go to traffic control and watch the controller communicate with another player. Because of this, they couldn't fake having one NPC talk to multiple players simultaneously, nor could they have multiple different NPCs handling simultaneous requests without breaking the coordination. They had to use subsumption to get NPCs coordinating with each other like a real team in an airport would. They didn't go into detail about how the berths were identified or assigned or whether there would be cases of ships having to await for landings due to heavy traffic or some sort of damage or even interdiction. That, as well as just how many unusual behaviors the NPCs have responses for, are sure to be things that players will test and push to the limit once 3.0 debuts. Well, I can see the first thing I'm going to do. Hello, Tower. Permission to fly by. <laughs> Negative, Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Tessa in the current um, 2.0 Persistent Universe. You know, they did a reasonable job with her appropriate sense of humor and the way that way she was played. And so it gives me some confidence that they'll have some interesting interactions with these new voices that they're adding to the game here. Doesn't this sound like a little, I mean, as in a general question, doesn't this sound like a little creep and uh, some more feature creep now they're just getting to this? When it, when 3.0 is so far away and they're just now adding this kind of, of thing? or I still think this falls within the dynamic, alive universe goal. I mean, whether you approve or disapprove of uh, Chris Roberts' idea of having like 100% high fidelity NPCs oh, everywhere. Oh, I approve. I definitely approve. Uh, I mean, I don't see why this would be out of place or beyond the scope of what they're trying to do. I, I guess in the effort to get 3.0 out and, you know, to the Ivakati and then out to the rest of us. Did it seem like this was a little another feature yet added at this late in the game? No, I don't think so. I think the features that they discuss in ATV aren't necessarily things that were broken or new things that they've just implemented. It's just, you know, whatever. It's a 3.0 feature that they're covering, but they could have had this oh, okay. finished okay. and polished off months ago. That's what I got the feeling of when I first saw or read about it. It was already in there, and they're just covering this as one of those features that we should know about. Yeah, I mean, they didn't mention any blockers or bugs when they were covering it, and it didn't come up in the burndown, so I think this has been fairly stable for a while. Well, they have to have some sort of traffic control, just like Elite has traffic control because you have to tell people where to land or to take off from etc so just having air traffic control is a, a a must have for this kind of game and then because star citizen is doing this whole immersion thing uh, it, it sounds like pretty much anything that you're going to interact with is going to have some sort of voice support so them having voices for air traffic control also makes sense uh, the thing here that i can see possibly as a, a feature issue is that the NPCs are unique. And in that case, that's that's less of an issue, right? Because it's not a gameplay feature discussion. Instead, that's a uh, an art feature or a performance caption caption issue. You know, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't take the same resources as as what we would we're like, for instance, talking about with 3.0 or anything like that. Right. It's very different. So I did have a question for the group. 
do you think if they implemented a minor level of traffic delay that would add to the gameplay and realism or would it just end up being universally annoying? It depends on how they did it. If this goes off well, I, I would not be upset. I would not be upset with delays at landing. Uh, if, if, you know, this is, you know, sorry, Ghost Rider, the pattern is full kind of thing. It, 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 it should play well into the realism. Well, you know, wait times at certain stations in the persistent universe might be a reason not to go to certain stations. Like, you're never going to go to the one that's orbiting Earth because, damn, that thing is always busy. It takes, like, 10 minutes to get through the stupid traffic control, right? Or I could go to the, the, the space station around Mars, and it's no big deal. So I'll just drop my stuff off at Mars. And so maybe and that, that adds to a lot of the, the immersion in the game. Yeah, I actually think it could be interesting for if there were, like, missions with... Uh, some sort of time delay on them, like car perishable cargo that has to get to a station within a certain period of time. Also, if you're afraid of being scanned while you're flying around waiting to get in, like in Elite, you can get scanned, bring in contraband into a, a station, and you, need to, get in. you need to get in I mean, quickly. But, well, that's what I'm saying. It's another gameplay element. You're stuck right. out there waiting for clearance, hoping the cops don't get close. You know, that's cool. And can you can you bribe their traffic controller to get you in the you know further up in the queue possibly, you know if you're if you're carrying these perishable goods maybe it's worth your time to slip to send him some credits to to get ahead in the queue right? Well, that's kind of the way I'm approaching Star Citizen or how I see Star Citizen. I'm I'm going to play that like it's a living, breathing universe, and I expect it to to play off that way. You know, I'll try to bribe the air traffic controller or maybe I sneak in and try to bump the guy uh, you know the guy that's sleeping at the joystick you know and and try to get uh, get ahead of him in the line or something but all those you know viable gameplays that's how I'm approaching Star Citizen right and or you, you guys you come up to the to the the space station and it's the, the patterns full and it's gonna be 20 minutes and you're like you know to heck with this I'm gonna quantum jump over to this one right over here and it's it's a quicker wait you know so maybe you but I'll, i know i'll lose a couple of credits in the trade but it's you know worth my the 10 minutes i save and you know in 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 the exchange and so that becomes a tactical choice as a player that you have to make you know am i am i going to wait this time and or and and go to this this station where i'll know i'll maximize or will i go to this other one where i won't have to wait also think of the other professions that you could become a a uh um a dock trader at another, you know, ferrying goods between uh, a close by docking location and you ferry the cargo, uh, charge a little bit more in fees and make profit by going to the busy, uh, busy landing zone. And, you know, it's your time to waste, but you're, you're the one that's making the, the profit off of it. Yeah. Yeah. So like the great, the great Blondini in chat just, just said something similar where, you know, because of differentials like that and wait times and the amount that they charge, then even short routes like Earth and Mars, where it's a real quick jump, might actually make sense as trade routes because you're waiting for these patterns to, to clear up in order to land and stuff. You could actually see people, like you were saying, almost stevedore-like ships where you, you catch people that are waiting in the queue and just say, I'm going to buy buy your cargo off you for, you know, a dollar under, just transfer under, and then I'll wait in the queue instead, <laughs> right? And right. I can't imagine the queue is going to get that long. I mean, 20 minutes seems excessive, oh, honestly. It depends on how much realism they want to build in, right? Yeah. It's certainly possible. It's just up to CIG whether they want to allow the delay to get that long. I'd, I'd be surprised if it's more than a minute or two, because I feel like... Game companies have to make concessions for gameplay versus realism all the time, and they always seem to lean towards gameplay. And this is a case where the realism is just an annoyance. Like, nobody likes to wait in line. Nobody's like, yes, the line simulator, 2017. We're going to play yeah, that. Yeah, but we did just point out a bunch of ways that it could impact gameplay. You're right, 20 minutes may be a bit excessive, but if you allow it to go to inconvenient times that aren't horrendous it does open up the possibilities like we're saying of people waiting in lines and um, you know making an advantage and a disadvantage to go to certain stations and, and sure. star citizens original concept was a very uh, heavily instanced game 
and they have since said that they are going to try and not do that in in the final iteration. So they really want everybody in the same universe. So if that ends up being true, then you could have a fairly large number of people going to the same port at a time. And if you want to keep this realism where each of the uh, incoming ships has an air traffic controller, they're all going to designated pan pads and either getting despawned or sucked up, which they haven't really said exactly how that's going to work. Uh, I guess Levski was obvious because you're going into a crater and the doors close and then, okay, well, you know, the doors can open and somebody else can go in that same door. Uh, regardless, you're going to, you're going to, you run into some sort of narrow, narrowing the bottleneck there, no matter how you do it, just simply because of the sheer number of people that are going to that one location. This week's Star Citizen community question, were you impressed by the fidelity CIG is putting into the air traffic controllers? Do you have a plan to foil the AI's behavior response programming? Share your evil schemes with us through our regular channels. Details coming up. In Elite Dangerous, we'll start with the good news. The Elite Dangerous galaxy still contains archaeological finds from humanity's ancient past. Another generation ship, the Lazarus, has been located in the vicinity of Verdnir 6. The bad news is, well, the expedition didn't make it. Although the logs from the ship say they built and launched lifeboats and sent them towards potentially habitable worlds within range, there's nothing indicating that any of them made it to their destinations. Hey, it says right on the tin, folks. Dangerous. Speaking of dangerous, apparently the in-game federal authorities are copying to a new Thargoid attack on one of their battlecruisers. And this time, the gloves are coming off. The Aegis Group, the Voltron Superforce combining Alliance, Imperial, and Federal scientists, are pleading for Thargoid resources to create weapons that will be effective against Thargoid defenses. As our new insectoid overlords are scheduled to arrive the same day this episode drops, I'd say the scientific community is cutting things a little close. As of this recording, the community goals driving these or drives are Tier 2 for Explosive and Tier 2 for Scanners. Hopefully, commanders will spend the weekend saving all humanity from doom because there's still three tiers to go. But, as in the first days of fall, there might be college football games on. So what happens if you don't hit the community goals? You know, they're going to have to come out with the weapons anyway. They can't just leave us stranded, uh, completely shut down by the Thargoid weapons with nothing to fight back that with. That would be hilarious. So the community goals are really more about getting points uh, through the community goal system the way you always do. I don't think it's really going to affect too much. You know, because they're going to have to give us the tools we need. It's not going to bother me anyway. I heard the Thargoids are coming. I took off. I'm near Colonia. <clears throat> I've been heading that way for weeks. I'm coming back as soon as the update drops because the new navigation tools are going to make it really cool to, to come back from such a long distance. So, yeah, Thargoids are coming. We've got community goals. That's all interesting. I'm more interested in the generation ship that was found. Another dead generation ship. I don't think any have been found alive at all. You guys haven't heard of any alive, right? Everyone we find out about is uh, dead and empty. I think that's strange because we have mega ships in Elite. I thought there was one that they found and they tried to make contact and the people were like scared of it. Maybe. I'd like to know about that one. I'll have to find out because I haven't heard of any. And I would think that, you know, it's a generation ship. They don't all have to be dead. They could have, you know, full crews. And I would expect some of them, you know, like we have these mega ships. Why couldn't somebody find a, a generation ship? That is like these mega ships we have where you can dock and trade and things like that. Because it'd be cool to have a faction, you know, a minor faction in the game that is uh, uh, from a generation ship that is unique to them. The way we have the minor factions on uh, existing mega ships like the Fisher and things. I'm wondering about these lifeboats. I bet, you know, if they launched the lifeboats and there was data in those logs, I that just sounds like another astro-navigation math puzzle that the uh, what's the big research group called again? Canon or Canon? Yeah, that Canon would love to sink their teeth into. Yeah, probably. But there have been other uh, things like there was another generation ship, and forgive me for not remembering the name of it, where they had talked about picking up a radio transmission that made them all go crazy. And I don't think there's anything about finding where that transmission came from as you move back along their path. Nobody's found anything but it sounds 
like you would. So I think these are just kind of mysterious stories that are put with the generation ships, and I think that's as far as they go. I'd love to find out that's not true, but I really think that's as far as they go. It would be neat if there were discoverable artifacts or, you know, the remnants of these lifeboats, but, I mean, given the way the game is going at present, probably most of the development resources that could put something like that together are focused on the Thargoids. Well, the cool thing is the uh, generation ships themselves are the discoverable relics, and that is cool. You know, it'd be neat if there was more to it, but it is cool that there are these discoverable relics in the first place. Time's up! Are you ready for the invasion? Did you do your part to prepare for the War of the Bugs? Let us know via our usual channels. Details are coming up. As you can tell from our voices, this week we're covering... No. Hard no. We are not doing this. Fine. <clears throat> As promised last week, our research badgers took some time to sing at a higher pitch in the helium rain. Here is their initial report of the new offering by Deimos Games. Helium Rain is billed as a space trading and building and potentially fighting game set in a deceptively sized universe. For listeners who saw Firefly, that show used space travel where traveling within a solar system was comparable to traveling around the globe today. This game uses a similar scale. A few planets and or sectors are all there is, which sets it apart from many modern space sims that boast more stars than players could explore in a reasonable amount of time. The obvious comparison here is to the X Games. If you have an itch for a game featuring trade routes and building stations, this game is a nice scratching post. You can accept contracts from NPCs to move cargo around and build stations. You can also buy other ships, from fighters to freighters up to capital ships. Again, like the X-Series, all of the ships are flyable, or you can give them orders so they will establish and travel along trade routes. Early access reviews and reports from our research badgers suggest this game comes out ahead of the X-Series in the early game. The learning curve isn't too steep, and the in-game interface and menus are more intuitive than the X-Series, which tends to drop people in the deep end and let them figure out their multi-nested interface for themselves. There are also helpful tutorials, something not always guaranteed with early access. Also, whereas getting to the point of building a station in X is something you can only even think about after 30 to 40 hours, the stations in Helium Rain are attainable much sooner. Now for the $160,000 million question. Can you use a HODAS? The answer is yes. Mouse and keyboard are also an option, and of course, the Steam controller is compatible because it seems like you have to intentionally design your game not to be at this point. The flight model is apparently full Newtonian, although based on developers' comments, it's Newtonian light. One of the stated reasons for not including multiplayer support is that the developers weren't confident about making Newtonian flight work with multiple players. Additionally, several reviews mentioned that one of the reasons for so many different control schemes work is that Flight controls don't require a large number of options to be met. The research badgers did not engage in combat, although declaring war on rival trading organizations is an option in the game and can drastically affect the balance of trade and prices of goods. The ships are apparently going to contain up to 30 customizable and destructible components, but the progress of that game mechanic is not clear. Also, combat seems to be something you have to be intentional and deliberate about engaging in. It isn't a random occurrence as often as many other space sims. This game is in early access and does not yet have a release date, which is historically a very hit-or-miss proposition for consumers. However, these developers appear to be doing early access right. Reported issues are acknowledged and corrected with impressive speed. For example, as far as we can tell, stations in the game can be set to automatically upgrade themselves if materials are available within a trade network. A station responsible for producing plastics also required plastics to upgrade. Since it saw that plastics were available in the trade route, it set itself to upgrade, which means it stopped producing plastics, thus creating a deadlock. When the bug was reported, devs responded quickly with a fix. Story missions, a slightly expanded universe, and some more detailed mechanics for ship systems are apparently forthcoming. But most of the early reviews indicate that the amount of content 
they have is enough to keep players entertained right from the start. If they keep up with their responsiveness to bugs, and if the game remains as fun as the earlier players seem to think, this game stands a good chance of being a win in the realm of single-player space sims. Well, I can certainly say the price is right. I mean, just $15 right now on Steam is an early access makes this kind of a uh, impulse buy. Yeah, and it's a good buy for that price, too. I played the heck out of it this week. I played a lot of it. It's a lot of fun. A lot of trading. I had no combat, though. I played for hours and hours and hours. Haven't even got a fighter yet. I have a mission to get a fighter, but I haven't uh, bothered with it. I've just been trading and empire building. How many, uh, do you know how many hours you're in? I don't, but I've, it's been several. I mean, I've, I've got at least 10 hours. It's been, uh, okay. it's been a lot of fun. I know the shift put in a lot of time too. Um, we've been talking about it in chat. It's been a lot of, uh, fun. I wouldn't say I, we compare it to the X games, but it is different in a lot of ways. The X games, I think is a lot more ambitious. This is obviously lower end graphics. It's lower end, uh, flight mechanics, I guess. Um, and all of that can be upgraded as time goes, but the, the graphics now are, you know, 15 bucks. They're good graphics. Um, the game mechanics look like there's a lot of potential for things to get even better than they are. But it's like you said in the report, there's a lot to do already. The, the, the screenshots didn't make it very clear. Is it kind of a mix between 2D and 3D menus or interfaces? You know, that's a... Uh, I, I didn't notice any 3D interfaces, really. Okay, I mean, you, but you when you're flying around, it's 3D, right? Well, it's a 3D game. I, I thought you meant like 3D menus or something. No, the, the, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of 3D because you're flying around your game. It's a 3D game, and you're seeing a lot of, like... The maps and things, those screens are all 2D. Uh, the star map, there's no uh, 3D to that. And, and it's not really a star map, it's a planetary map or a system map, I should say. Because you're only in one solar system. It's, in, it's worth noting the way that map system works, too. It's basically a list of locations drawn around big circles to represent the planet. And you select one, and then fast travel to it. And you're talking about fast travel that takes days, right? So... You could choose not to fast travel, in which case you're looking at, looks like warp trails um, around your ship, and it would be days. Um, or you can just jump right to your system. So it makes it a lot more of a point-click adventure than a flight sim for me. Um, you're even able to automatically dock at stations after you warp, or not really warp, but after you uh, fast travel to them. So I played the whole game. Once I, once I played for a while, I played the whole game with just the mouse without flying myself I was just clicking around telling my ship where to go like you're captaining it without really piloting it and that was cool but I wouldn't call it it's not a flight sim a lot of the reviews I saw recommended to people that they not use auto docking um, although they were apparently impressed with the actual procedure of docking at a station yeah um, it was cool even auto docking is cool it's not like it's instant you know you actually fly there you set a target, you fly there, and then you watch your ship dock. So I wasn't complaining about that so much as the game became a whole lot more of a casual experience because I never once felt threatened when I was flying. I never once felt like I was going to crash. And docking was simple, easy, and it was not required that I was very precise with my flying. Like, I could be way out of alignment, and I was still getting a good dock. I'd have to be really out and really going too fast to have any damage or problems when I docked, which happened a few times just for me testing. It sounds like the flying is just for immersion's sake rather than actually a skill needed in the game, right? Probably. And I think that's cool. Like I said, playing it as a casual game was a lot of fun. I'll, I'll play games like that um, all the time. You know, just play with one hand while I'm doing something else. Um, I'll be working or something or I'll be watching TV and I just have kind of a game going. I do that a lot with Kerbal because it doesn't require a whole lot of uh, interaction while you're traveling and things. So I play a lot of games that way. Star Trek Online, I play that way. This one's going to be great for it, because there's nothing in the game that you can't do just one hand on the mouse and automatically by issuing a command. So it makes it very cool as a casual experience that way. I'm wondering if the lack of combat is due to design choice or if it's because of where it is in the early access process. I kind of hope it's design choice. I know that I could follow that path and that I could influence the economy by attacking traders uh, and things like that in freighters, but I, I haven't done that, and I've been trading and having fun with it, and there has been uh, stations that get damaged by asteroids and things like that, or they'll get attacked that I'll hear about, but I just haven't had an experience where somebody's tried to come after me or any of my ships, uh, and I have a handful of ships now. 
I just haven't had it happen. I assume it'll probably be worked in more. And I think after I do the mission where I'm supposed to acquire a fighter, uh, you probably get attacked a lot more. I just haven't gone that route yet. Do you know what the end game looks like at all? I mean, is it is it just simply... What their plan is? Yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, right now, you just kind of build up and you build up and you have more and more stations and the like. Is there some sort of overarching story or is there a... Um, a different game like once you get to a certain point there's going to be a story it's not in there now it's listed as one of their future design goals it's one of those things where you'll have your own narrative anyway i mean you're you're basically put in a situation in the beginning and then you are starting from that point so whether there's a story or not there are missions that have i don't i wouldn't say they have any narrative to them they're like go here buy this go here drop that missions but they're generated on the fly and there's transport missions there's uh, missions where you're taking passengers. There's missions where you have to go and supply a station with a certain product. You have to figure out where to go get it. And you have to manage your time because moving from place to place takes days. And missions usually have a time limit. So you have to coordinate, can I take these three passengers and drop them off as well as pick up those supplies and do all that in the 12 days I have? You know, it's 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 neat. I know we'll see where it goes. You know, it's developing. It's alpha. I think once the story's in, it might be more interesting that way, but I think story right now uh, might even be in the way. I'm just loving it being an open sandbox to play in. And you can play it one-handed. And you can play it one-handed. So, (laughs) anyway, I fly VR, and in Elite you can have a second window open. I have a program that puts uh, another window open in your cockpit. Uh So typically I'll be watching podcasts or I'll watch Netflix. This is the kind of thing that I would put in that second window. Sometimes I'll stick Star Trek Online there, and I'll fly in Elite and then I might uh, just park my ship somewhere and play Star Trek Online for a while in my VR in Elite. And I totally will do this with Helium Rain. Play it on a console in my Elite uh, VR setup. That'll be cool. We, we heard you like Space Sims. So we put Space Sims in your Space Sims. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. It's funny. Our Helium Rain community question. Have you taken in some of Helium Rain? What were your thoughts on the experience or the description of the gameplay? We want to hear. Let us know through our comm channels. Details coming up. But now it's time for news we didn't use. More paint jobs in the Frontier store celebrate the demise of human civilization with a swanky new neon fusion look. On sale now for only 40 shillings or 60 nickels. American. Another potential space sim, Heat Signature, has popped up on Steam. Our badgers have their IR scanners ready and report back next week. I think the paint jobs in the Frontier store, all these neon ones, I'm not really loving the fusion look. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I think they're overdone. I like the uh, like the tactical paint jobs. Those look cool. But some of the the more intricate ones, I think, look really overworked. Think Tron, kind of, but not really an outline uh, type oh, of thing. Oh, it's more okay, like a okay. glowing I, paint I pattern. I talking about. Yeah, I wasn't a fan either. And I, I don't see the point of painting a glowing paint pattern on a combat ship anyway when you want to probably not be the most visible thing in somebody's windscreen. So I don't know. Unless, unless you're just so badass that it doesn't matter that <laughs> yeah it could be bait or if you're bait yeah that's another yeah or if you're or if you're just running if you'd ever run with a uh, reduced heat signature why not right because you're going to be lit up anyway with the targeting reticle i don't know i just i'm not a fan of them i don't think they look great well now that we're all caught up with the latest news let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation okay buddy what's on your mind Somsa, he's written an entire chapter in a seven-book epic fantasy series that turned out to be a fart joke, and that you had to have listened to last week's bloopers to get the reference. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. A recap of last week's community questions. What was your reaction to CIG's burndown and bug count adjustment? Are you getting distracted by the noise or just staying the course? And for Elite Dangerous, are you scared yet? Running for Colonia? Or do they wish to just hurry up and invade already? How much of that 99.996% of the remaining galaxy can we put you down for? Amandiato says, 
I'm happy they're adjusting the threshold for an Evocati release, as I'm anxious to feel engaged in an actual video game once more. Hopefully this move doesn't slow down release to the general PTU and live. Giroux writes, The completionist is still 15k. The idea that the burndown wasn't for the Evocati was a little silly. There isn't another bug list for the other waves. The reason for the Evocati is to create the next bug list. The idea of the burndown bug list is to only fix the showstoppers, bugs that make the game unplayable in some way, e.g. collision traps, death traps, system crashes, persistent desyncs, etc. Once the game is deemed as playable by the developer's Q&A, Evocati go to work. The Evocati's job is to find the not-quite-so-obvious bugs and balance that can only be discovered with the working game. My guess, push up horn-rimmed glasses, is that a huge chunk of these bugs that were removed from the burndown could be quarantined in a way that allows them to put them off till later. If there is a feature that can be removed to prevent the players from experiencing the detrimental effects of a bug, they can take said bug off the burndown list and put it on the regular bug list for a later date. Good show, damn it! P.S. I love to help you guys with editing, but I haven't the time. So the, the we never see the true bug list for the game. Like, pretty much all of these bug list counts are really for what is going to affect a release. And so there is a total master bug list as well. What we see post-Evocati probably still won't be a, a, a full bug list. It'll be, it'll be a number of quote-unquote blockers to the next release. The entire total bug list is something, some order of magnitude bigger. And I'm sure there's bugs that are getting fixed that aren't part of the blockers list as well. So there's probably a lot more Jira tickets than even these numbers encapsulate. As for like the Evocati thing, I had a big argument with people on, on Twitter with some of this stuff. I, I, I don't think that the Evocati's job is really to find the bugs that are not so obvious. I think that's, uh, I think really the Evocati's job is the first level of stress testing to make sure that the, what they're doing executes in the wild correctly. If you look at why the Evocati was originally made, it was because two, the 2.0 launch was so horrible. They had so many uh, crashes that were very obvious. There was a lot of people like in the press that were on the PTU builds and going for five minutes and then server crashes were happening all the time. That's what the Evocati are there to do. They're to do the first line of bug testing. They're under NDA. So in theory, it's a reduced amount of leakage to as far as general consumption, but they're almost a, a marketing and message buffer to get some of these alpha playtesting with a larger group of people that isn't exposed to the financial impacts you might have with a reporter saying the game is, is, is horribly buggy. Uh, the Evocati are, are, are that buffer, and they do those first level. I, a lot of people saying, oh, it's going to be an Evocati forever because, you know, the Evocati are going to generate so many more bugs and things like that. There's a big graphic on Reddit today because of, about that. And I completely disagree. That's not what the Evocati's job is. And the Evocati, they're not going to leave it in Evocati longer if they find more bugs. The only reason it stays in Evocati longer is if they find bugs that are blockers to other people testing the game. And what they're clarifying as blockers, what they're clarifying as saying, we don't want to release it any further until this is fixed. There's a fine distinction between a normal bug and one of these blockers. So I think it's it's a little 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 fuzzier than than the simple statement there. And thanks for correcting me about the completionist price. Bob Dobolino writes in and says, "Ha, huh, about the dodgy headlines and fake refunds. This is just further evidence of gaming journalism being nothing but glorified bloggers with a lack of any journalistic ethics. So pathetic." No wonder Star Citizen fans get their backs up whenever anyone tries to badmouth the project. There is obviously a segment of the gaming public that would love for this project to fail, and will put out any sort of FUD no matter that the truth might be. To which Jeru replies, This community is pretty good at taking criticism, this podcast especially, so long as it's logical and not just an outright lie. But let's not comment ad hominem fallacy on the journalists, and let's discuss the subject itself. I think I see where Roger is coming from. You know, I, whether this is bad journalism or whether people are, are not understanding the community or, or what the case may be here, I think is, is fuzzy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter either way. I mean, these people like reporting what they like reporting and they're, they're getting clicks for it. 
Well, I think that's their point. They're saying these aren't journalists, these are bloggers. And there's a big distinction between someone reporting and someone editorializing. So I think that's what he's saying. In general feedback, Sean Newboy writes in and says, Wonderful show, everyone. Kel3770 writes, I'm surprised you guys didn't know this. The reason Cassini was a contamination risk was less about microbes and more about it being nuclear-powered versus the Titan probe, which was battery-powered. I listened to a very good one-hour discussion interview with one of the Cassini Project leaders on NPR about the mission, and she covered this in detail. Longtime listener, infrequent poster, great job and keep up the good work. I, I, didn't, I actually did not know that. That is, that is news to me. Thank you. I thought Ostron said that last week. I might be I wrong. I was discussing the contamination. I didn't mention the nuclear thing. Yeah, we missed that completely. Ah. Ken from Chicago replied to our Eve question from a show or two back and said, Somehow, after that ginormous robbery betrayal, I doubt there will be much debate on ship classes. That said, yeah, giving clearly defined roles for ships probably will make it easier for players new to Eve Valkyrie for variety. That's what Star Citizen does when introducing ships. Usually. He also had some thoughts on the 600i. My belated response about the 600i reveal in the Q&A... There have been lots of complaints about it, so instead I would like to pose how it should have been announced and might still be. The key is what Ben Lesnick said in an interview with Nikki Batgirl D'Angelo in her Ben's Day YouTube series, Luxury. Just as CIG's original announcement of the Orion ship introduced mining and the hull announcement introduced cargo hauling and the Starliner introduced passenger transport, the 600i should have introduced the game concept of luxury. What are the benefits of luxury? Are you able to enter fancier areas of the UEE, including ARP Corp, Earth, and Terra? How do NPCs respond? Do they give you better offers on goods you're selling? Do they demand higher prices from you for goods you're buying? Is the quality of goods increased so they last longer before needed repairs? Does law enforcement give more leeway on technical violations? Do you attack more attention from thieves, criminals, and pirates? Are we done with hypothetical questions? Yes. Okay, we are. Chris Cooper writes in and says, Good show. Thanks. But where the f*** is Squadron 42? Silent Ruin writes, Grammarians? Where? Where grammarians? <laughs> like canthopic grammarians. Explains much in my frequent encounters with them I th if I think about it. Ponders deep thoughts upon it. And finally, unsightly walrus writes in, Grammarians, also known as Hadesians, were the original inhabitants of the Hades system. Well, there's no new Patreon this week, and you can, you know, imagine my sad face. But the random winner this week is Rising Death. Yay! And this week's community questions... Were you impressed by the fidelity CIG is putting into air traffic controllers? Do you have a plan to foil the AI's behavior response programming? For Elite, time's up, Commanders. Are you ready for the invasion? Did you do your part to prepare for the War of the Bugs? And have you taken in some of the helium rain? What were your thoughts on the experience or the description of the gameplay? We want to hear. Drop us an email, a tweet, or a comment on our show post, which you'll find on our website and over on our Facebook page. So, how was the show? Fit enough for the high seas, or do we need to walk the plank? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com? Or you can hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 186 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 187 on October 3rd. So be sure to keep an ear out for our shows over at GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, we know, then you should come join us at 10 p.m. Central as we record Guard Frequency live over on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash guardfreak. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25 a week, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, some Guard Frequency goodies, and an invitation to our private Elite Dangerous flight group. 
We want to thank all our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution, because the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. You can find us over at discord.guardfrequency.com. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to track them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Our thanks go out to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster, our artist Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, and our staff writer, Jace Pintad. And of course our audio engineer, Mikey. Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjenkins.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce thrust. Six people just finished an eight-month-long study backed by NASA using the Huawei Space Exploration Analog and... Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's... That's Hawaii. You're right. (laughs) 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 Ah, I didn't recognize it. That's great. (laughs) Yeah! And and that's uh, Manalau Manuna... No, Moana. No, Mal, Malwana. Malwana. Almost like the new Disney movie. Yeah, there movie. you go. Mana- Manana? <laughs> Manawa. Manana. $16 million. Dollar be Jeff. Qu- huh? Yeah. Jeff? What? <laughs> I'm reading. <laughs> what? I'm reading. Just wanted to say hi, buddy. Sorry, bud. What? Who? What? Where?